This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This episode is brought to you by the Estee Lauder Companies. Hello, hi, and welcome to another episode of The Emma Gunn Show. I am your host, Emma Gunn Awardner, and in this episode, we're going to take a deep dive into one of the most, in my opinion, fascinating people in the beauty industry. It's Terry Barber, who is Director of Makeup Artistry for MAC and has been there, done it, and boy, does he have an opinion. He's been with MAC for 25 years, and in this episode, we go right back to the beginning, the extravagant out there makeup counter that spoke to Terry and people like him who weren't perhaps the traditional beauty consumer, his training, and then finding himself on set with his idols. We also talk about the great and the good in makeup right now, as well as the trends Terry would rather see disappear. We also do a spot of future gazing and speculate on what's to come and how he thinks the beauty landscape may be changing and why we should all feel hopeful and excited about the new generation who'll go on to shape the beauty landscape in years to come. Oh, and here's a clue. You might not find them on social media. I'm delighted to welcome him to the podcast. Here he is, Terry Barber on The Ember Gun Show. Listeners... Joined by Terry Barber, Director of Makeup Artistry for MAC. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Be afraid. Be very afraid. <laughs> That's what I always say before I start speaking. I am slightly Not fearful. Really. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is probably, in, in as much as anything else, this is a podcast that people have been asking me to supply them with for a long time. They have been wanting to hear from you because your career, is, well, it speaks for itself you have been around, how does one say this without insulting? You've been around for a long time. Yeah, I've been around for donkey's years. <laughs> and your name is synonymous with Mac, with a certain type of aesthetic, and just with being really damn good at what you do. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, I think also what people want to hear, especially now, is maybe just someone who has a point of view. Mm-hmm. And I think we're in a time when it's very difficult sometimes for people to have a point of view. But I guess I've kind of worked across some very kind of specific decades, Mm -hmm. especially when it comes to beauty and Mm. style and fashion. And I think people like to hear 
I, I think they like to hear a backstory. Mm-hmm. They like point of views from people who have lived through kind of or worked through certain periods in time, mm-hmm. you know, right from the kind of late 70s and early 80s right up to now. And I think especially in places like the UK and Ireland, you know, that we live through some very specific subcultures and mm-hmm. movements. Um, and, I spe- and I think there's a new generation who like to hear about that. Yes, and also there's also this generation of people who just appear as almost like completed entities. And yeah. what's nice is there is a there is a story here. You've talked about the seventies and the eighties and yeah. whatnot. So shall we go back there? Sure. Shall we go back to the very beginning? Well, I'm probably still living in it now, so why not? <laughs> <laughs> so, where I mean, specifically with your relationship with Mac, how mm. did that begin? Um, I well, I joined Mac in '94. I went straight to work on Counter. Like, when you said 25 years ago, I was like the 70s. I've got that thing in my head still. Yeah, yeah <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a bit lost in time as well. <laughs> yeah. I don't kind of what, know what 2019 actually means. No, no, exactly what you mean. And the 90s still feels about five minutes ago to me, or like practically that we're still in it. Yes, yeah. Um, but yeah, 94, I, I'd heard of Mac before I went in to enrol, as it were. You know, it was a word-of-mouth thing on the streets at mm. that time. If you did makeup, you kind of heard of this brand that was kind of making matte colours that, you know, that were being handed out to photographers and supermodels and all of that stuff. Um, and it was a bit of a buzz on the street in terms of, like, makeup brands. So when I knew it was going to arrive in the UK, I was ready to sort of march into Harvey Nichols and like declare myself because Harvey Nichols was the first Mac counter outside of North America it actually it was the first global Mac counter oh was it now and so Harvey Nichols was basically catering for the rest of the world <gasps> in terms of Mac and it was it was crazy it was crazy times I mean on that counter I remember the doors of Harvey Nichols opening in the morning and people just falling in and literally sprinting to the counter <laughs> so they could get served straight away. What would be the th- what would be the thing that back in the day people would be like I want one of these or I want eight of those was there an iconic product even back then? Well, I guess the the iconic product of the time was spice lip liner. I mean, yes. that's something that everybody mm. owned or ha- makeup artists always had it in their kit. Mm. Women always had to have it in their makeup bag even if they didn't know quite know what it was and what it <laughs> did. I mean, that was the thing about the Mac counter at the time, we had no visuals. Mm. Like, there were no pictures of models, you know, hanging above the counter. We, you know, we weren't particularly selling an image. It was oh, just wow. this product which had this kind of reputation for for just working for, like, real people, yeah. you know. What, was, what were you doing in the run-up to Mac, then, if you were, like, right... I'm going to be first at that Mac counter. I'm going to go and work there. What had been the career before then? How had you got into makeup? I don't think I particularly had any career aspirations at that time. I mean, I come. I, I guess I came out of the generation. I we were the kind of the post punk kids, you know, in the late seventies in the UK. I mean, I guess you had people like Bowie at the beginning of the seventies. Then you had punk at the end of the 70s. That was the catalyst, really, which kind of changed the concept of style in Britain. 
and attitudes. Mm. I mean, it exploded into all these kind of subcultures of music. Um, all these kind of tribes of kids came out of country towns and came out of the suburbs, listened to music, thought that's what I want to be in some mm. way. They wore the uniform of their music. They dis- divided into all of these little subcultural tribes. You know, you could be a mod, you could be a rockabilly, you could be a punk, you could be a new romantic. You know, I mean, you kind of wore the you wore the music that you listened to and you hung out with groups of people mm. who were the same as you and had the same attitudes. Um and it was they were quite hedonistic times as well. Oh, I, w- I don't think we were that ambitious. We didn't really think of the future. You thought of the moment that you were in. I mean, I couldn't really think any further than what I was going to wear to the club that night. <laughs> what tribe did you fit into? Um, I was. A, we were all mixtures. You used to skip in between. I was quite neuromantic. Mm-hmm. You know, it was all a bit fragile and sort of pale, powdery foundation, and you know, a little bit poetic and <laughs> thoughtful. Thoughtful and pretentious. Um, But, you know, I mean, I guess at that time, it was all about music. Mm. Music created style. Mm. Because that's what, you know, that's how you dressed, according to your music. Mm. And I think in the UK, it was especially, it was, and it style came from the bottom and worked its way up. You know, it came from the streets, it came from the youth, Mm. listening to the music. Now I think, style tends to be a little bit fed I was about to say force fed yeah 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 you know it's it's very much about brand and it's about celebrity Mm. and it's about copying whereas then it was just kind of literally created by young people who were being inspired by music well it's reminding me of of voguing yeah the fact that Madonna saw voguing in the clubs and was like yeah okay let's take that to what I'm doing yeah that's really interesting. Yeah. So it was all like it was when you say hedonistic, was was it people's identity, was their music and how they looked and how they presented themselves, but it was kind of a live fast, die not die young era, because that sounds a bit morbid. But was it just were you talking about living in the moment? Was it did it feel quite electric? Yeah. In comparison mm-hmm. to what we've maybe seen over the last twenty five years. Yeah, you can't it, it was almost like you'd created your own universe. Mm. Um and you know, everything was regardless of the future. This is how I want to feel now. Mm. These are the people I want to hang out with. This is the attitude I want. Regardless of whether I feel like this in the future, I don't care. This is, <laughs> this is now. You know, I, I, when I talk to young people now, I mean, they're a lot more ambitious. You know, they have more of a plan. They're more strategic. Mm. Whereas at the time it was like, you know... I just want to live in a bedsit and try and make Vivian Westwood outfits out of coat hangers and crisp packets. <laughs> you know, it was all very kind of DIY and instinctive. No, no social media, of course. So, you know, you felt like you were literally in your own little universe mm. and just living for the moment. So social media back then was being plugged into your own tribe and going out and speaking yeah. to people. And it was very instinctive. It mm. was amazing. You... You'd listen to some music, then you'd kind of, like, dress in a certain way, and you'd end up going to a club, and you'd see a thousand other people who were dressed like you. And you hadn't communicated with those people. You didn't know those people. They just Mm. turned up in a club, and everybody had a... You know, they kind of looked similar and talked in a similar way and had 
similar attitudes and mm. aspirations. Were you were you born in London or did you? Uh, South Wales. South Wales. I was the only freak in the village. <laughs> so again, there's that to me is really interesting of like coming to the hub, and South Wales. I'm guessing was nowhere near as tribal or as connected. No, I think a lot of a lot of you know small towns, country towns, suburbs mm. in the UK were full of these little kind of groups of kids who mm. needed to get out and. Mm. You know, they didn't necessarily want the future that their parents had kind of um, destined for them. You know, they just had to go kind of somewhere where they were accepted and they could express themselves and mm. they could live in the underground a little bit and go to the clubs. And um, was that what you were drawn to? Was yeah. it the bright lights? You were like, this is where I can be me. Yeah, not even necessarily bright lights, just a bit of concrete for me, <laughs> you know. Was it a case of Vivian Westwood lives there? And I like in the sense of I definitely remember wanting to be in and around London because that's where like rock bands were, yeah, and where celebrities were. So I thought, well, I need to be closer to that, yeah, than my tiny village. Yeah, I mean, I'd also um, there were a couple of like key magazines at the time, mm. like the Face magazine, mm. um, and like ID. Um, and those were like the Bibles at the time, because that was that. Those were almost the magazines which told me that there was a style culture. Mm. I mean, I, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't even know the possibility of being a makeup artist existed. I thought makeup artists were just people who worked on Hollywood films, or on kind of TV dramas. I didn't know that there was a, you know, makeup artist that worked in fashion mm. until I like read magazines like The Face. Which was, which was almost your kind of way in. It mm. told you that there was a world of an industry or, a, or people who actually made a career out of styling. Mm. Um, and I remember the Face magazine when it came out. It was like a Bible. I think my local WH Smiths only ordered in two copies, so you had to like queue up <laughs> and wait for it. Um, and have a fight with the people over who bought yeah, those. Yeah, I don't know who bought the other copy in my hometown, <laughs> but I'm sure I didn't know them. <laughs> You probably would have liked to have found them. Yeah. It would have been an interesting conversation. Yeah. So did you ever... Sorry, you were about to say... I'd say... <clears throat> I mean, going back to the um, the idea of Mac, I think Mac attracted those people. Because mm. I remember when I... My first experience of Mac was before I worked for them, I was on a trip to New York and I went into Henry Bendel's on Fifth Avenue. And there was a Mac counter there. Mm. And I kind of walked in and literally like, oh, my God, it's like a homecoming. Do you know what I mean? All the people working on the counter look like me. Yes. Was it not just the people on the counter, even the counters itself? Was it just a, oh, yes, this? Yeah, yeah. It just felt like home. Mm. Um, and up to that point, I really hadn't taken working that seriously. You and know? How did you get... How did you... <clears throat> When did you first pick up makeup and start doing that? Was it on you, on your friends, or was it always as a makeup artist on other people? Um, I were probably on my own face, mm -hmm. to be quite honest. Um, having kind of worshipped Bowie for years, and all of a sudden I saw, like, Boy George on top of the pops, mm. like, completely, you know, the pinnacle of experimentation, mm. and just thinking, I kind of, that's what I want to do. Mm. So it was all on my own face. Um, I, but I also got a Prince's Trust grant 
um, in the beginning to do a, a very short fashion makeup course in London. Did you? Because I just thought the only way I... If I kind of want to do this, the only way I can do it is have some qualification. Mm. Um, but, you know, I didn't have any money and my parents weren't able to sort of pay mm. for a course for me. But I, uh, I contacted the Princess Trust and they... I remember a representative came to my house and I was there looking all punky and like... Subversive. Subversive, <laughs> exactly. Um, I just said, you know, I've got this idea that I want to do this for a living and this is the only way I can do it. I didn't have any business plan or anything. And they gave me a little grant to go to London and do a, a very short fashion makeup course at a makeup school. And was that a life-changing moment, that course? Yeah, I mean, it didn't, it, it didn't suddenly unlock doors for me. It wasn't immediate. You know, mm. then I had to actually had to go and get a job mm-hmm. to support myself. And, you know, I, I lived in bedsits and rented rooms. And I, I think I worked in Top Man at Oxford Circus at one point, um, like just merchandising, T-shirts, um, all sorts of jobs. Mm. But at that time, we just lived to subsidise our going out to clubs but that there's a lot of honor in that way of living that that reminds me of like when i was younger and you you would you do the graph to yeah pay for the fun <clears throat> yeah or to you know pay for the next thing or to get get up the next step of the ladder yeah um so you're on the mac counter mm-hmm. what were the kind of conversations that were happening on counter in, with consumers back then that maybe differ from the kind of conversations that people have now is there a distinction well, for a start with the, 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 ki- the kind of people that came to work on a Mac counter at the time were probably, a lot of them were, wouldn't, would probably not have been employed by other, other makeup brands. <laughs> right. You know, we were slightly outlaws, you know, mm. we were there with kind of biker boots and cycling shorts and... Piercings. Yeah, piercings <laughs> and all sorts of stuff. Um, so a lot of the... I mean, I guess a lot of customers at that time came to the counter with some kind of trepidation. But we were so kind of proud of our product and proud of the fact that, you know, we were this band of people Mm. working on that counter and people were loving it, that we ended up, I think, just giving the best customer service that they could possibly Mm. have experienced. You know, we were almost kind of compensating for the fear that those consumers might have had of us by just giving them the best service ever. Mm. Um, and I think that's what was amazing about, you know, Mac initially. Obviously, now it's a much bigger brand. Mm, very, yeah, different. But at that time, you know, because it exploded into the industry, mm. doing everything completely the opposite to um, the status quo, as <laughs> it was. Um, and, and we really sort of felt part of that moment. We felt mm. that it, it was about the product and it was also about us. And the trust that had been put in us mm. to bring across this fantastic range of products in the best way that it could be. So it was like your own little Mac tribe as well. Yeah. Your own little subculture. Tribes again. Tribes. Tribes all <laughs> over the place. Um, also, I remember my first encounter with Mac. And I remember being quite scared of it. Mm. Because I always in my head had it that it was the... A, a makeup range for makeup artists therefore mm-hmm. in order to be able to use it and get any kind of decent result you had to be skilled and I knew I was not skilled and um, 
I, I wonder whether that was something that you experienced from consumers as well of, I'm a bit scared of this. Yeah. Do you feel that it led to a period of experimentation that maybe other brands or just w- wasn't out there anywhere else? Yeah, I think there was a fear. But at the same time, I think what was brilliant about the brand that is that almost the kind of power that it gave to consumers. Mm. I think there were certain products that once someone mastered how to use them, it gave them such a strong identity and Mm. such a kind of strong sense of self. I mean, it sounds a bit stupid with a makeup product, but something like, you know, Studio Fix Powder, I guess, was the was the one of the key products mm. at the time. And a lot of people who came into the counter did not know a product could do that. It's like it looks like a pressed powder, but it's got the coverage of foundation. All you have to do is put it on with a sponge. Mm. You can put it all over your face and you look flawless. Whereas I guess at the time with other brands, everything was very layered. Mm. You know, you had to have a serum and you had to have an expensive moisturiser, then you had a liquid foundation and then you had whatever else. Mm. But all of a sudden this product turned up. This is all you need. You can put that on and you'll have flawless skin. Mm. So so some parts a bit made people a bit fearful because they felt they had to be skilled. Mm. But actually a lot of the products were incredibly consumer friendly. But it's the innovation that was scary. It's the fact that it really was first-to-market formulas and first-to-market yeah. products. Yeah. And that's a really interesting position for you to be in because you're kind of still learning, yeah. but then you're sharing this messaging and you're making these new innovations become really uh, making people feel very comfortable with them in their hands. Yeah. And, and I, I just think with... I think everybody has a story of when they bought their first Mac product and how it made them feel. Lip gloss. Yeah, <laughs> lip gloss. It could be it could be a Ruby Woo lipstick or a mm. Russian Red or like a Studio Fix powder or a face and body foundation, which is so thin but oh makes the skin gosh. look gorgeous. I recommend that foundation. When people DM me and say, what foundation? It's always MAC, Mac face yeah. and body, MAC face and body. Yeah, it's, it's quite magical, mm. and it, but not in a complicated way. Mm-mm. Um, so yeah, I've I've always my favourite thing about Mac, actually, is how what it means to real people, how mm. it gives them it gives them a certain identity and a certain feeling, mm. which is not necessarily about perfection to me. It's just about strength. It's like a Ruby Woo lipstick. I mean, you can put a you can put Ruby Woo lipstick on with dirty hair and a scrub down face and all of a sudden you're, it, it looks incredibly chic but in a slightly rock and roll effortless way. Mm. Or you can put Ruby Woo on with full retro glamour yeah. with flicked eyeliner um, and you look like a bloody movie star, mm. do you know what I mean? And to me, all of those kind of... And it's there's something about the lipstick, it's more than a red lipstick. Mm. Like it's really powerful. Oh, yeah. Ruby Woo, I mean, Ruby Woo's a... Ruby Woo, it doesn't matter if I'm out and about and I see someone wearing a red lipstick, I'll always be able to tell, and you stop and you say to someone, excuse me, is that Ruby Woo? There is some... And there's... It's a red lipstick. Yeah. It's it's so easily identifiable. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, people put on Ruby Woo and they even kind of... They act in a slightly different way or walk in a different way or, you know. There's a certain kind of attitude that it has. 
Well, so you were on counter. Mm. When did you start? When did the rise of Terry Barber happen? Where you became like this huge name in makeup, working with celebrities, supermodels, and the like. Um, I guess when I, I guess when I started doing shows, because mm. I didn't, you know, I, I mean, I was a working. An on-counter working mm. artist. Yeah. So I didn't start... It's not. I didn't go straight into doing editorials and shoots and celebrity. Mm. I guess doing shows is when I... I guess I started getting... Because I, I think what I have is a presence. I don't see myself as any kind of bloody superstar at all. You know, I'm a <laughs> jobbing makeup artist like most others. Um, I think I have quite a strong point of view, which I've always enjoyed mm. expressing... Um, I like I like being a storyteller when it comes to beauty. Mm. You know, I I don't see myself as someone who who just kind of talks about product and offers false promises about what they'll do. Mm. I'd rather tell. I'd rather storytell. I'd rather talk about possibilities and attitudes and tweaks and you know moods and mm. um, and I, I guess that's become my presence as a makeup artist. Mm. You know, I'm not. The makeup artists that shoot Vogue covers every day, or you know, mm. that's not me. Mm. I think my my presence is slightly different, slightly a step back, but no yeah. less important. Yeah. Well, it's a different. I think I have a different existence also to say freelance artist because mm. I work for a brand. Mm. So I guess my my journey as a makeup artist has been within a brand. Mm but also kind of working in the industry outside. So I guess my position's quite unique. And it's allowed me a little bit of a helicopter view on the industry. Mm. You know, I can see it from all angles. That's really interesting. And it doesn't surprise me as well, the shows, because it seems like the most obvious thing, mm. especially at that time in London, would be to go from that counter to working in fashion. Yeah. Like the the music subculture, it's so, as you said, you all dress the same way. Yeah. It's almost like a uniform. Yeah. What was the first show that you worked on? We started at Mac as a t- as a team. We started working on shows um, in about ninety five or ninety six, I think. And the first show I did was actually a brand called People Corporation in London. And the head designer was Roland Murray <gasps> before he became <laughs> Roland Murray. And I think the first show I worked on was a show that he did in the basement of the so- Soho Cafe on Wardour Street. I don't think that exists anymore. I don't think it does. Because I always remember the Soho Cafe was kind of the haunt, one of the haunts of the club kids. You know, club the post-club coffee shop. <laughs> the post- oh, the post-club coffee shop. <laughs> My God, it must have been so exciting. So was there a moment, you said you didn't really think beyond today. Mm. Was there a moment, was it before or after you'd started doing the shows when you thought, well, this is it, this is what I want to do forever, this is... I want to keep doing this and get better at it and do it bigger and louder or whatever it might have been. Yeah, I mean, I think because I was working because I was working for Mac as well. I almost liked, um, I almost liked the kind of the almost the three sixty of the way that I was working. Mm. I went on the shows, but then I kind of came back to the brand mm. and I would tell the stories of the shows to the press. I would even tell the sh- stories of, you know, the beauty from the shows to the artists who mm. worked on counter. I loved that whole idea that rather than just being a makeup artist backstage at a show, 
that there was all these other layers and aspects mm. to it. Um, and and I've, I've talked about makeup trends for a long time because I was doing the shows and then part of my job was just, just to relay those stories back to the media and back to the press. And in my role as a journalist, that has always been a highlight is when you do your morning or afternoon session, depending on which one you can make, where you will literally deconstruct, right, yeah. this, is, this is what we can take from this particular fashion week. Mm. And it sounds like, really, is there a lot to take away? But actually, there is. Yeah. Because also, with, with Mac doing shows, it's not like we're just working on, like, a couple of shows mm. where we want to sort of plug a certain product. We worked on everything from, you know, like the, the designers from Antwerp who show in Paris, where it's very raw and very deconstructed and very sketched, you know, right through to the more kind of upbeat, luxury kind of sports show, where shows in New York, you know, to the kind of new generation, crazy theatrical shows in London. We always kind of worked with every aesthetic right across the board. So in terms of trend, we we told a full story mm. from the the raw no makeup makeup story mm. right through to the full on you know glamorous like luxury mm. glamour um, you know glamour and hate, everything in between. Yeah, I hate to use the word edgy because I feel like edgy sometimes it doesn't really cover it. But Mac has never been scared of pushing the boundaries of no. looks. And have there ever been any times during the 25 years where you've thought, this one might not go down all that well with the masses, but it's brilliant and I stand by it? Have you ever had that when you've been pushing things? Oh, plenty. <laughs> but I've, I think I've never... I've always... For me, it's about explaining... Like, like if a runway trend is so ridiculous that obviously no one's ever going to wear it, mm. it's a bit like the blue sweater speech from The Devil Wears Prada, Cerulean isn't it? Cerulean blue. Yeah. <laughs> Eventually, you know, it's not... You know, um, fashion's job is to provoke. Mm. Sometimes mm. it's fashion's job is to be a little bit ugly. Prada knows all about that. She started that aesthetic. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, if you look at someone like Prada... Mm. She started off making, working with the clumsy, the awkward, the asymmetric, mm. the clashy. You know, that, that was her kind of aesthetic for mm. clothing. Um, and, and I think that's actually what fashion's meant to do. Mm. Like it's meant, I think fashion is meant to um, create a lot of what-ifs. And it's meant to suddenly veer on the side of ugliness. Because that's style, isn't it? Mm. You can't. You can't have any continuation of style unless you kind of play in a lot of, lot of other aesthetics other than just the one of just being perfect. Yeah. Yes. It's like beauty to me. Beauty sometimes has to go... It has to kind of go a little bit near ugliness in order for it to move forward because we have to question it yeah. all the time. We have to question what is beauty, what is perfection... Otherwise, we, everything will just stay the same all the time. Because mm. sometimes, not all the time, it can mm. flip-flop. Like one season, it'll be super, super glamorous, super heavy. And then another season, it'll be, oh, it's pared back and no, yeah. no mousse in the hair. Yeah. Um, and it just sort of seems to flip-flop. But actually, it's it's not as simple as just flip-flopping, no. is it? No. I mean, I, I, liked, I liked what we did at Mac as well when we used to... Like, we even did a trend called No Makeup. 
I mean, what other brand would do that? We did put the no makeup in inverted commas. <laughs> no makeup. <laughs> because we know there is, we know it's not no makeup. Mm. It's strategic concealer. Mm. You know, it's minim, a little bit of highlighter on the heels of your hand, palms, the hand pressed into the cheekbones. Mm. We know it's not no makeup. But even that, that minimal, there's a craft to it. Yeah. So we kind of took that on as a trend, which I thought, I, I loved the kind of bravery in that. Mm. Would it, like, creatively, are you always, is there a feeling or is there a mood that you have to have, whether it's a no makeup or it's completely the other end of the spectrum? Do you have, like, a spidey sense of when you know this is right? I think there will always be both. Mm. I think, you know makeup trends, especially when it comes to shows, it always plays at either extreme. Mm. You know, I mean, because that's the breadth of designers that you have. Mm. You know, Dries Van Noten is never going to be Versace and probably vice versa. Mm -hmm. But they have equal appeal to kind of mm. different types of people. And I think beauty is the same. Mm. You know, there are, there are people who consume beauty whose ideas that they want to use it to look like they've got nothing on. Mm. They will always be. They're not going to suddenly turn into Kim Kardashian. <laughs> we know that. Mm. And there are those who just, luxury, beauty, you know, beauty at its utmost mm. is constantly Im important and they're never going to suddenly turn into some kind of raw, androgynous mm. minimalist. <laughs> Nothing's wrong though, is it? No. That's the beauty of it. Yeah. Now, I do have to sort of take it to the lowest common denominator and ask mm. you, because we're talking about extremes in beauty. Yeah. Is there a trend, a look, or a, an aesthetic that is current that you wish would disappear and go away? Um, I guess it's the... Um, I just don't like the generic face. Mm. I mean, I... I mean, we have to go there. It, it, is, an, it is a social media face, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, Which I, I don't really like to berate all the time. We're because... coming on to your social, Terry. Fear not. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be fun. Um, but I guess the idea... I call it the identikit face. <laughs> you know, it's one brow, mm. one... Nose. Eye makeup with a cut crease. Yeah. The same cheek. Mm. That lip. Um, I guess it's just the identikit beauty which I guess people are led to believe mm. is a perfect face. Yes. And I think this is actually a very important thing to distinguish because we talked earlier about subcultures mm. and wearing your music as your identity, etc., mm -hmm. etc. We all did it. So I think today's identikit face is the equivalent of my 92 Doc Martens. Yeah. So I, I understand it, but I sometimes... We probably created that trend at Mac, by the way. <laughs> you know, I mean, we created the over... You know... Yep. The overdrawn Spice. lip. The overdrawn lip. You know, walk out of a Mac counter and you'll have Linda Evangelista's mm -hmm. lip with Spice lip liner and a nude lipstick. Yeah. Wet, wet eyeshadow brows. Mm -hmm. Plenty of highlighter on the brow bone to show off your brow. Lots of shading in the socket of the eye. Lots of taupe in the contour of the cheek. But that was, that was very interesting because that 
speaks to the brand and the, the people who work there in the sense of that was about artistry. That's about, mm. listen, when you're putting, it's not just about rouge on the apples of your cheeks. Did you know you could make your cheekbones look sharper? Do you mean you could mm. actually make your eyes look bigger? That's what it was about. Um, so yes, it has funneled into yeah. a particular look. But I think, and I'd be interested to know what you think about this, I sometimes find it a bit... It makes me wince when I see young, yeah. beautiful girls in the yes. street because I feel like they are using the same makeup techniques that I see. Uh, I don't know if I want to go down that road, but that it's the homogenization of beauty, yeah. and they're all and they are not celebrating what makes them unique. No, and I think also maybe it ends up looking. It ends up being a bit sexualized. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also for someone who's young to to have so much kind of emphasis on perfection I don't think is healthy for the mind mm. I think you have to experiment with a lot of different aspects of beauty before you decide what perfect is mm. and you should decide that for yourself not yes. have it inflicted upon you um, I don't you know I, do, I don't believe that young people should have kind of celebrities put in front of them and said, you know, you should aspire to look this this way and you'll be successful. Mm. I don't think that's good for the mind. I just think um, with young people, maybe they're just... Somehow it feels like they're missing out on being young in, fo- in focusing mm. straight in on that kind of that perfect face. And it's slightly trophy girlfriend, isn't it? It's... Um, do you know what it lacks for me? And again, got you in the room, so I'm going to ask mm. you whether it's for you as well. Um, it's lack of interpretation. It's just yeah. copying. It's like yeah. tracing. Yes. As opposed to saying, oh, I've seen that, now I'll make it my own. Yeah, bit paint by numbers. Mm. Which I think is a bit of a shame. Um, in the 20, last 25 <clears throat> years, what would you say is, do you have a fondest memory or something that you look back and think, I literally cannot believe that that came to pass? Is there anything that is, whether it's a highlight? Mm. Not a shimmery one, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I mean, I got to, I got to work with some heroes. Okay. <clears throat> did you work with Bowie? I didn't. No. Would you have liked to? I think. Well, I think I would like to have observed. Because mm. for me, Bowie was all about him doing his own makeup. You know, all those old clips mm. of him backstage, just kind of painting his face with all those theatre products. With a fucking one hand. Basically, amazing. Yeah. Um, I got to work with Grace Jones. Pull up to the bumper, baby. For many, for quite a few years, actually. And I got to do a, a photo shoot with her and Jean-Paul Goude, who shot all of the iconic album covers, which I used to pin onto my bedroom wall. Um, so I got to work in a studio with them. And was it what you imagined? Did you, like, when you Better, went... actually. Oh, wow. Yeah. In what way? Well, because I just got to see her as a um, a human being behind that, and it really doesn't really didn't disappoint. <laughs> you know, how does how do you bring your A game to that situation? Because I would working with heroes is something I yeah I have people that I would like to speak to on this podcast who are essentially heroes, and I worry about my knees buckling and not being able to get my words out. Yeah, that yeah, it's um, I mean, luckily when I got. When I was actually in a studio with her and Jean-Paul Goude, I'd worked with her for quite a while, so I'd had I kind of warmed up to <laughs> that situation. Probably if I'd gone straight into that situation, <laughs> it would have I might have like collapsed. Mm. Um. 
This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I, you, learned, you learned to sort of work and appear quite kind of coherent and technically able while screaming inside and having <laughs> slightly out-of-body experiences. I mean, it is strange. I remember working with Eliza Minnelli for a week in a hotel in London, and she was fantastic. But just suddenly to have this face that was so kind of iconic and recognisable and mm. familiar in front of you, you, you do literally have out-of-body experiences. I can't even imagine what that must have been like. And then to have your hands on that face. Yeah. I guess... I guess just, th- you know, I mean, there's, through <laughs> a lot of deep breathing <laughs> and just having a conversation with someone. Mm. I mean, I, th- I think in that situation, that person suddenly has to become human to you. So just ha- simply having a conversation, mm. like, this is a human being... Mm. Um, Diana Ross I had a similar experience with. Oh, my word, Terry. I, d- I think I worked with her twice, and she was an absolute hero of mine. You know, pictures all over the wall at home again. Um, it ended up being a lovely experience because I didn't I didn't feel disconnected from it. I enjoyed it. Yeah. Because I thought, I mean, God, if I'm going to work with Diana Ross, I'm going to bloody well enjoy it. <laughs> yes. Do you know what I mean? After I got over the initial shock of I put my kits down and when I stood up there was a, there was one of the Supremes in front of me once I got over that <laughs> it was great um you and I guess that's a muscle that one builds and flexes and you don't strike me as somebody who is impressed by celebrity you judge you treat everyone the same and so if you do suddenly look up and Diana Ross is there, you're able to very quickly go, yeah, she is a supreme, but she's also Diana. Yeah. I mean, obviously there are uh, celebrities on many different levels. Of course. (laughs) And and I guess when the celebrity sort of, like, level goes into legend, Mm. there's a little bit more pressure. But Mm. no, I'm not really... The concept of celebrity doesn't really interest me that much. And is that also because you feel very confident in your abilities? So you're just like, well, there's nothing... I don't care if you're the biggest star in the world. There's nothing you can throw at me because I know I, I know what yeah. I'm doing. Well, I don't see it as a challenge. Ah. 
I'd rather go in and see it as a very enjoyable collaboration. Like the first time I worked with Grace Jones, she taught me how to do her makeup. You know, I mean, because she'd done it all herself yeah. throughout the 70s and 80s. And she still does her, you know, does her own makeup for, for gigs now. Mm. So we collaborated on it. And it became a very enjoyable experience because I didn't feel under pressure to, like, perform. Mm. You know, it, I didn't see it as a, as a test or an exam. Mm. It's like, let's kind of work on this together and let's both create something amazing. I think a lot, of young, a lot of young makeup artists, when they do makeup, they feel that they have to technically prove themselves. Mm. I call it the beauty Olympics. <laughs> you know, I have to do this flick liner better than anyone else and this eyebrow fleekier than anyone else. But actually, that's really not what it's about. All makeup to me is, is a collaboration, mm. whether it's with the person wearing it or the photographer shooting it or the filmmaker filming it. You know, it's always a collaboration, mm. not this kind of like, you know, it's not a, it's not an exam, mm. it's not a um, rehearsal, Yeah. you know. Terry Barber just said fleekier on my podcast. Fleeky. I'm very happy. <laughs> I've tried to avoid it, but, you know. Sometimes you just have you to have go You have to cut out it. the middleman, <laughs> go straight to the word. Now, you talked about collaboration then as well, and actually one <clears> of the things back is known for is its collaborations mm. with celebrities people of note uh one of them the viva glam being your friend and mine <laughs> rupaul mm-hmm. not my friend one day um do you have a favorite collaboration i think it would have to be that one yeah i think because it was the first and so and, be, and because it was so radical at mm. the time i mean we all know that with with Mac, the people that he collaborate with, it's it's about the, you know, it's about the Mac AIDS Fund, mm. you know, and Viva Glam. Mm. Um, but in terms of impact, um, that to me was just a moment. It was quite punk at the time, mm. wasn't it? It was like when everybody else is selling supermodels and luxury and kind of imagery which me always said to people you'll never be this but you can dream Mm. all of a sudden there was this reality of this underground drag queen I mean who better to show the power of what makeup can do than RuPaul what year was that that would have been I possibly around 90 about the time I joined maybe a year after 95 I'm thinking yeah because it was, it was really radical. And wasn't Rue the doorman woman for the Max Door in the States? Oh, in possibly. New York? Like that was maybe there was some kind of relationship. I could be wrong yeah. there. But yeah, that Viva, that Viva Glam campaign. Yeah. And it's gone on and on and on. Yeah. And it's just incredible. So I guess, you know, because of, of how powerful it was at that time. Mm. And it was the first face that Mac had ever used. They hadn't had a face before. We didn't really have pictures on the mm. uh, the Mac counters, but all of a sudden, if you're going to go in there and have someone representing, boom, that's it. <laughs> Do it right. And is it quite interesting to you, the fact that now, like, Rue and what's happened with Drag Race and that mm. aesthetic is now... I don't know whether mainstream is the right word, but... I'm a girl from a small village in Kent and I live and die by it, so I'm guessing mm-hmm. it's pretty mainstream. Yeah. Um, is that really interesting to you, having been there right at the beginning when you did that first Viva Glam? 
that it's transcended and it's actually become a huge, huge part of pop culture. I, d- I don't think it's a surprise to me. Mm. I mean, because it's so appealing to everybody, <laughs> though, isn't it? Mm. It doesn't really alienate people, I don't think. It, the exact opposite. You know, it's theatre mm. and it's kind of... It's pleasurable, it's enjoyable, it's funny. Mm. You know, it's, it, to me, it represents everything that's kind of um, quite positive. Yes. Um, so why not? Yeah. Why wouldn't that sort of become, you know, in the mainstream? Yeah. I mean, Drag Race is genius, right? Yes. If it's coming to the UK, that's all I'm saying. I'll leave I that kind in the of air. love it if it was actually very British. <laughs> yes. You know. Let's see what they do with it. Um, whose makeup haven't you done that you would like to do? And this person can be dead or alive, or you can have one of each. Um, I mean, I've been very lucky, and I've worked with a lot of heroes, so I don't necessarily feel a yearning. Oh, maybe Kate Bush. Mm. Kate Bush. Mm. Kate Bush is from very first time I saw her on Top of the Pops in 78, singing Wuthering Heights, and I saw the very first performance on Top of the Pops. I was absolutely transfixed. So original, came out as almost some kind of pre-Raphaelite, medieval, kind of wailing maiden, (laughs) right in the middle of punk. Mm. And I think the next day I went up to Woolworths and bought both Kate Bush albums that were out at the time. Mm. And I've listened to her ever since. So maybe Kate Bosch I would like to have worked with. She went to my school. But did she? Yeah, but obviously we did not cross over. No. Which is a damn shame. But, I mean, maybe I would have liked to have worked with her. Maybe I'd just rather have her remain this mythical creature within my imagination. That's how I feel about Rue. Yeah. Desperately want to have a conversation <clears throat> with him. But equally... Do I want to have a conversation with him or do I want him to remain as Rue in my mind? You know when Rue was touring for us right. with Viva Glam, um, he, he visited a, num- a lot of cities around the UK and I remember I used to have to go to like um, lamp shops and buy lamps for him because he did his own makeup. Um, and so we used to have to get all these lamps, you know, because hotel room lighting, you can't Terrible. do like intricate yeah. makeup in. <laughs> so we just go out and buy loads of spotlights <laughs> and lamps for him to have in the hotel. So And just point them at him. Yeah. Paint yourself, Rue. Yeah. You gotta be on stage in an hour. Yeah. Wow. Which the fact that, you know, he did it all himself mm. to become RuPaul, that kind of made it more amazing to me. Mm. I think he's a very interesting very interesting human being yeah um there's been a lot of change in the beauty industry in the last 10 years yes and you've obviously been at the forefront of quite a bit of it um but the consumer is definitely more informed Mm -hmm. about things like ingredients and is definitely more a more aware consumer Mm -hmm. um and they're more experimental so if you had to predict trends for maybe the coming few years what would you say is on its way based on how the consumer has changed um, in terms of the future, I think there's, I think there's two ways of thinking about beauty. There's people who are going to almost kind of shun a lot of the artifice. Mm. You know, people who feel they almost kind of want this kind of restoration 
to go everything to being back to very kind mm-hmm. of not natural but kind of raw and quite earthy and mm. quite you know quite real mm. and then there are those who are enjoying every single piece of technology that you can throw at them <laughs> every beauty treatment you know who will constantly move further and further towards like, looking like a social media post mm. you know products that make you look filtered products that make you look plastic mm. and synthetic do you do you like that does that have a place that look anywhere that synthetic um, look yeah it does mm. but I think you know like anything I think it has to be well styled and mm. I just think it has to send out the right message I, I think the problem at the moment is for me, is the idea of beauty, which is about just about sex and sexualize, sexualization. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Mm. It, it, for me, it doesn't it, it doesn't send out a message of someone's self. Mm. It it seems to be beauty, which is designed to please. Mm. Or alter the point I was going to say earlier, and because we've talked about Rue, I might as well say it. Mm. That Insta kit look, mm. identikit look. Sorry. Um, is a lot of the techniques are drag makeup techniques. Yeah. So it's feminizing a female face yeah. for the purpose, as you say, of like yeah. there's that kind of over sexualized, which yeah. that's what makes me shudder yeah. about it. Which, and also to me, that is not glamour because mm. I like glamour. Mm. I mean, I like beauty on very many different levels. Mm. You know, I love, I love the idea of rawness, mm. I love the idea of minimalism, working with one detail, you know, putting a red lip on a raw face. You told me to do that last summer. I still haven't had the balls. <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's a kind of fashion fantasy, the idea <laughs> of suggesting that someone just put on a red lip. But, you know, to kind of strip everything mm. back and go for it with one detail. Mm. I think that's... For me, that's quite um, experimental. Mm. A lot of people think of experimental as putting loads of makeup on. To me, that's not experimental. Mm. To me, experimental off, very often is taking most of it off. Interesting. You know, working with rawness yeah. and then working with something which is dramatic. That's actually bolder than being bold. That to me, yeah, that yeah. to me feels bold. Interesting. Whereas right. to me, you know, putting lots of makeup on very often is just putting lots of makeup on. Yes. And it kind of makes you look the same as everyone else. Mm-hmm. So that, that tends not to be that radical to me. Mm. Whereas to strip back and just kind of like push one detail forward in mm. some way. It's like putting a black line inside your eye. It says so much, doesn't it? Preaching to the converted. And it's one detail. Yeah. And it makes you feel a certain way. You're right. It immediately goes back to your days of skinny jeans and radio head. <laughs> you know, you put the black line in there mm-hmm. and it makes you feel... You can do it at any time in mm. your life. Like it's, it, I guess it's seen as something which is quite young and emo and teenager. But I think you can revisit it at any time and you'll go and you'll suddenly tap into a certain feeling. Mm. That's very true. Like the first time you listened to Creep by Radiohead. You know, that black line inside your eye. <laughs> Tom York's Brett on top. Yeah. Um, but to me, that's kind of that can, that kind of knowing of what little details and little tweaks do. Mm. 
that's more skill than... to me that feels like skill whereas just putting a lot on for me that's the easy that's the easy part especially when it comes to makeup artistry mm. yeah it's it, yeah it's like you said earlier color by numbers yeah big blush big bronze yeah big contour yeah i mean it's it's a lot it takes a lot more kind of no, I'm not going to criticise people who do that mm. because that is a really, really good... They're really good skills to yeah. master. You know, I did it in the 80s and 90s. Mm. You know, I learned how to shade someone's cheekbones in. I learned how to shade everything. Mm. And if I hadn't mastered that craft, I wouldn't have been able to strip back and, like, mm. pay her back a little bit. So, it, you know, I'm there's no way I'm going to, like, criticise mm. from someone for doing that and being proud of it because mm-hmm. they should be. But maybe the next level is you can take some of that away and kind of work with you know things which are more nuanced or Mm. you know a little bit more to do with combine combining naturalness into that or rawness into that now speaking of nuance Mm. let's talk about your social media outfit oh there you go told you we're gonna do it because your instagram page is well, it makes me hoot and holler laughing mm. because it's so... You are the only person who would dare do <laughs> three pictures of blusher and next to it three different types of luncheon meat. Yes. <clears throat> <laughs> Why, how, what, Terry Barber? Because, well, A, the blush does look like the colour of luncheon meat. <laughs> <laughs> it was the orange one that was very um, Trump-esque the other day. Yeah. Well, I, I guess... Well, when I, I didn't do social media for a long time, but I thought if I'm going to do the whole Instagram thing and talk about beauty, mm-hmm. I'd rather maybe cater for a... There's a whole bunch of people that don't normally get catered for. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a bunch of kind of subculture kids out there. There's a load of emos. You know, <laughs> there's a lot of kind of very fashion-style conscious people mm-hmm. that are not actually getting catered for at the moment because mm-hmm. they're seen as niche. So I thought let's, you know, cater for... The uncatered for. <laughs> um, I like the idea of the visuals being a bit more provocative and mm-hmm. a bit more irreverent and involving humour, which to me is all part of dressing. You know, it's not all just about looking perfect. For me, you know, people like a bit of wit, humour, contradiction, mm. clash, awkwardness, clumsiness, all of those things. Mm. I thought, let's bring a little bit of that in. Um, I like, I'm as fascinated by ugliness as I am beautiful. Yeah. You know, like horrible lurid packaging in supermarkets <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, all the kind of mass-produced stuff. And yeah. It doesn't seem like something that you have to think about either. It just seems like it's it's just already there. Yeah. I kind of wanted to take a little bit of the fantasy away and a little bit <laughs> of the intellectualism away and... And also just kind of maybe play beauty against ugliness, which I I think is quite, can be quite captivating. Mm, yeah. So we're not going to see uh, pictures of Terry's, uh, a selfie? On your no, well, I'm, you're not going to see <laughs> pictures of me on my perfect holiday with my perfect body and my perfect tan and... Hashtag blessed. <laughs> yeah. Love my life. No. No, we can be reassured that there will be luncheon meats, what's-its and... Yes. Other cheesy crisps. Yeah, which I, and I love all that stuff. And I, I'm, I've got a fascination with like ergonomic household objects. <laughs> Why? 
I don't know, because they're just such beautiful designs, yeah. but they're all almost kind of unsung heroes. You know, like the mountain climbing hooks. Yes. And like the loops and the links. They're amazing designs, but because they're considered so practical and basic, mm. they don't get like applauded as pieces of art. Are you like me? Are you somebody who goes into a department store and the department that you will end up finding yourself in is kitchenware? Yeah. <laughs> But not actually to buy stuff for the kitchen. <laughs> Just to kind of look at colour palettes and... Look, feel, yeah. shapes. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people for art find inspiration in the walls of the Tate Modern. You'll find me in the aisles of B&Q normally. <laughs> <laughs> for our international listeners, because I don't know if B&Q is international. It's the hardware store. It's the hardware store. Yeah. The big one. Pack yeah. em high. Yeah. Stack em high. Um... <laughs> Here's an interesting question. We've sort of covered the perceptions of beauty, but um, do you think women, and I don't want to make this binary, so like, mm. do you think people mm. understand they're beautiful? And I want to add a little thing here. I played a game, I was in a taxi the other day and I was playing a game. I was going from one side of London to the other and I just thought, right, I'm going to look out and see how many beautiful people I can see. <laughs> it sounds really mm. daft. But there were so many to actually, when I actually stopped and took the time and looked, there were so many beautiful people mm-hmm. and beautiful in so many different mm. ways. And I did then think, I wonder whether they know that someone would have looked at them today and thought, they're beautiful. Do you think people know? No. <laughs> I, don't th- I don't think it's a human instinct for us to think we're beautiful. Because mm. I, I, for me, that sounds quite kind of narcissistic. Mm. I think... If we go around, I think I'm beautiful. You just, you just need to check yourself, don't you, really? <laughs> yes. I just don't think it's... I don't think we're programmed to think we're beautiful. Mm. I think we're programmed to, like, permanently kind of question ourselves or critique ourselves. I don't think, like, knowing what your faults are is, like, somehow being depressed or miserable. I just think it's human instinct, mm. you know. I think anyone who thinks they're beautiful, they're just a bit weird. Yeah. Is that me? No, because I think there's, like, it should be in the eye yeah. of the beholder, shouldn't it? Yeah, and beauty's, maybe beauty's the wrong word. Because mm. beauty to me is a kind of an emotion, isn't it? It's a mm. kind of euphoria. Yeah. Whereas for me, when it comes to human beings, it's about sort of confidence and mm. self assurance mm. and, you know, feeling great or feeling stylish or. You know, feeling strong. Mm. But, I mean, feeling beautiful. I don't know. Feeling beautiful is more... Maybe we're not supposed to feel that way. No, I'm just getting caught up. It's a social media vibe, isn't it? Yeah. My bad. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's like the whole question of what is beauty, isn't it? Mm. It it just kind of manifests itself in too many different ways to actually define... Mm. It's your, it's your kind of reaction to something or captivation to something or an effect it has on you. And beauty to me, very often, it could be dark, you know, it mm. could be slightly ugly or contradictory or... Yeah, the day that we have a definition of beautiful, probably not a great day. Yeah, and it's a word that's used a lot too much, isn't it? Mm, yeah. That's a very fair point. Now... We're coming to the end of our time together. So, what is next for you, Terry Barber? What is next for you and Mac? Is there anything exciting you can tell us about? 
Um, not really. <laughs> <laughs> More of the same. Well, yeah, I'm kind of. I I just I've I guess I've reached a bit of a philosophical phase where I think well if I'm still working and I'm still earning a living, uh, you know, just doing makeup mm. or talking about makeup or talking about the world of beauty, then it's then it's quite a good thing. <laughs> I mean, I've done a lot of things which I've been I feel lucky to have done. So I guess I've gone full, full circle to being very unambitious again in the same way that I was <laughs> in the 80s. What if that's a brilliant full circle. But let me ask you this. Are you still as excited today as you were back then about what you do and what potentially can happen in beauty, in Mac, in the industry? Um, I guess... Not really. <laughs> That's correct as well. I, th- I think what I'd be keen to see, I, I think there's a lot of kind of restorations that I'd like to see in the beauty industry. I think it's gone a little bit crazy. Mm-hmm. I think it's gone a little bit gimmicky. Mm-hmm. I think it's gone a bit unreal. You know, I, th- I, I think it's suddenly not become about people. It's become about products and... Um, you know, uh, endorsements and mm. it's just become about brands. And I'd, I'd, I guess what would excite me and what I feel like I'm kind of working on a little bit with Mac is the idea of bringing it back to the people, which mm. sounds all like terribly like I'm some kind of like outlaw politician or something. Beauty activist. Beauty activist. It's not, but, you know, the idea mm. of you know, just kind of bringing it back to the kind of the people that use it. Mm. I'm, I'm, I like, the, I like real, you know, I like, you know, I love real life situations when people kind of use makeup really well. That's mm. what excites me. Mm. You know, watching the girl who's sitting on the bus get her makeup bag out on her lap and do some amazing yeah. something on her face in five minutes and everybody's all businessmen are giving her filthy looks <laughs> but she absolutely doesn't care because she's in her own world mm. and maybe she kind of smudges some black around her eye and you know I love I that excites me yeah the real yeah but you know all the kind of the whole kind of celebrity stuff and the yeah and we- anything which kind of Anything which people feel detached from or makes people feel inferior in mm-hmm. some way in beauty, I don't like. Mm. This idea of impossible beauty and... Hyper-real and filters and... Yeah. 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 To me, it's not stylish. Mm. To me, if, if, if that's all you seek, then you need to find your style somehow. Mm. Yeah. Well, that's the future. I think so. I think we're going to... It's it's unpredictable, isn't it? Because I think, mm. I mean, we talked about trends earlier, but everything is very cyclical, mm. and it's very difficult to um, predict, because I think things go in waves and cycles. Who knows? Tomorrow we could have another punk rock. Mm. I mean, particularly if we're 
obviously heading for some kind of recession. I mean, in the UK, great things have come out of recessions before. Yeah. I think the UK... You're the first person I've spoken to who's got anything positive to say about it. But that's so true. Well, you know, I mean, maybe we need to be a little bit skinter and a little bit angrier. (laughs) Then we'll create some great music. The kids will once more rise from the suburbs, (laughs) dress up, become world famous, and we might have another kind of... uh, Movement. Movement of style again. Who knows? I ha- I'd like that. I like to see that happen. I'd like to see it too. I can see it in the new generation. I think I can see little clues to the what the new generation want. Are they Generation Z? Yes, they are. <laughs> I don't know. I lose track. Yes, they are Gen Z. Um, well, I'll I'll watch by your side. We'll we'll watch together. Mm. Terry, thank you so much for joining me. Pleasure. I've had so much fun. Was I rattling on for way too long? No, no. not long enough. We'll do okay. it again. <laughs> um, the links to follow Terry on his social media, which I highly recommend you do, will be in the show notes. But for now, Terry Barber, Director of Makeup Artistry for Mac, thank you. I've loved our natter. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. Just a reminder before you go that if you do want to get in touch with me, it's so easy. Email me at thebeautypodcast at gmail.com. I get all of those messages personally and I reply to them all personally. Can't wait to hear from you. If you feel more comfortable sliding into my DMs on social media, it's simple too. At Emma Guns on Twitter and on Instagram, or you can click the link in the show notes, which can be found wherever you are listening to, streaming and downloading this episode, and click the link to the closed Facebook group where a lot of podcast listeners and I are in there having mega conversations about all the things from the podcast. Please do come and join us. We're having a great time over there. Thanks again for listening. I cannot wait to see you on the next one. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.